Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Temptation and Testing, Made Like Us in All Things. It's a guest essay by Ron Hansen. Ron Hansen is the author of eight novels, including Desperados, the Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, Mariette in Ecstasy, Exiles, and most recently, A Wild Surge of Guilty Passion, as well as a children's book and a title, A Stay Against Confusion, Essays on Faith and Fiction. Twice nominated for a Penn Faulkner Award, he was a finalist for the National Book Award for his novel Atticus and is a recipient of an award in literature from the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters. Scribner published his book, She Loves Me Not, New and Selected Stories, in November 2012. Married to the novelist Bo Caldwell, Ron is director of creative writing at Santa Clara University, where he's the Gerard Manley Hopkins SJ professor in the arts, and humanities. Temptation and Testing. For Sunday, February the 17th, 2013, the first Sunday in Lent. <clears throat> in Luke's Gospel, the baptism of Jesus is followed by a genealogy that traces his fatherly lineage back to son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. And then, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus leaves the River Jordan for 40 days in the Judean desert in order to be tested by the devil. Weakened by hunger, Jesus is first prompted to exercise his divine power by turning a stone into bread. Refusing that parlor trick with a citation from Deuteronomy 8.3, Jesus is then taken higher given a vision of all the glories and empires of the inhabited world, and is told all he surveys will be his if he pays fealty and homage to the evil one. Citing, citing the book of Deuteronomy again, chapter 6.13, Jesus rejects the invitation, saying he will serve only God. And so the devil spirits him from the wilderness to the holy city of Jerusalem. There he tempts Jesus to prove his faith in God by leaping from the highest pinnacle of the temple with the conviction that God will preserve his son. And when Jesus scorns the devil with Deuteronomy 6.16, do not put the Lord your God to the test, the devil departs from him, Luke says, for a time. Early Je Jewish hearers of the gospel narrative would have connected the 40 days of Jesus' retreat with the 40 days that Elijah wandered hungry in the wilderness, the 40 days and nights that Moses fasted before etching the Ten Commandments, and the 40 years that the former Egyptian slaves wandered in the desert before reaching the Promised Land. Hellenistic hearers would have connected the three temptations with their threefold categories of vice, the love of pleasure, 
the love of possessions and the love of glory. And it's a tradition in Christianity that Jesus lay dead in his tomb for 40 hours before he was resurrected on Easter. But this week we do not see the glorified Jesus in our gospel. Instead, we find a 30-year-old carpenter's son who was at a crossroads in his life and is most decidedly vulnerable and human. Up until his baptism, when the heavens opened and he heard, You are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased, Jesus might have had no knowledge of his miraculous conception, the wonders that accompanied his birth, nor the messianic predictions of Simeon at the infant's presentation in the temple. <clears throat> Recall that chapter 2 in the Gospel of Luke concluded with Mary and Joseph finding the boy Jesus in the temple, and Jesus telling them he needed to be in his father's house. And we read there, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Could that mean she thought it more psychologically healthy for the boy Jesus if she were silent about his heavenly origin? Could it be that his first stunning realization that he was truly the Son of God occurred at his baptism by John? And Jesus needed the solitude and prayer of 40 days in the desert to emotionally come to terms with that revelation? The Jesus we see in the wilderness is very much like us. We all know there need not have been an external tempter or evil spirit to be distraught and torn by just such tormented interior questioning and self-doubt. We stew over our choices. We fight dejection with every failure. We fight vainglory with every achievement. We are subject to all the seven deadly sins. And the Jesus of this gospel for this week's passage can relate to that. He can sympathize. <clears throat> In most Christian denominations, Lent concludes with Holy Thursday, in the final supper with his disciples, in which the inner meaning of Jesus' gift of himself is revealed. Afterward, Jesus and the eleven left the upper room for the Mount of Olives, where Jesus underwent a fierce testing of his faith and obedience, as the evil spirit that departed from Jesus for a time in the wilderness tempted him again. The Wednesday prior to Holy Thursday is generally called Spy Wednesday, because of its assignment as the night when Judas Iscariot conspired with the Sanhedrin to betray the Son of God for 30 silver coins. We have no certain idea of his motivations, but we can imagine Judas being tempted by one or all of the threefold categories of vice. The love of pleasure, the love of possessions, and the love of glory. And Judas failed the test. <clears throat> But the Jesus we find in the wilderness this week is one who teaches us how to respond to temptation with his own focused prayer, his fidelity to biblical instruction, in his perfect obedience 
to his father. A guest essay by Ron Hansen, Temptation and Testing. For books this week, I review a title by Bernard Balin. It's called The Barbarous Years, The Peopling of British North America, The Conflict of Civilization, 1600 to 1675. New York, Knopf, 2012, 614 pages. Across the last 50 years, Bernard Balin has distinguished himself as one of the premier historians of early America. His 20 books have earned him two Pulitzer Prizes, a Bancroft Prize, a National Book Award, and, in 2011, the National Humanities Medal. This new volume completes his trilogy of the peopling of North America that began with a book, The Peopling of British North America, back in 1986, an introductory volume, and then his book, Voyagers to the West, also in 1986, which was limited to the years 1773 to 1776, and based on the survival of a complete register of the 10,000 immigrants who left the British Isles for America. Balin disabuses us of the stereotype of white Anglicans displacing Native Americans. There was nothing simple about this migration, nor anything genteel. Population recruitment was a continual challenge. People's motives were many. It was a chaotic and violent experience for everyone, a crude and primitive existence no matter who you were. Barbarism flourished within and among all groups for widely divergent reasons, since virtually every aspect of their lives was fragile and unstable. With disease, harsh weather, and starvation constant threats, mere physical survival was an enormous challenge. By 1616, for example, only 351 of about 2,000 immigrants who had populated Virginia had survived. <clears throat> Some of the immigrants were aristocrats from the wealthy intelligentsia, but only a small percentage. Many more were soldiers of fortune, convicted felons, prisoners of war, indentured servants who were bought and sold, slaves from Africa in the Caribbean, orphans and child vagrants. In other words, marginalized and stigmatized people who were looking for a better life or who had little control over their lives. Later, truly free migrants came, like mid-level planters, often with interests that conflicted with those of English patrons back home or Puritan neighbors with their religious vision. These people comprised an ethno-linguistic polyglot group. At least 18 languages have been identified among the Dutch settlers of New York. In addition to disaffected Puritans of various persuasions, there were the Catholics who settled Maryland, German Lutherans, Scottish Presbyterians, 
a few Jews, and that most seditious of all the many enthusiast sects, Quakers. Their dreams and schemes targeted the Atlantic seaboard from Florida to Nova Scotia. These people face deep conflicts in every area of life. Savage racial conflicts with the Indians, bitter religious conflicts within and between groups, conflicts with public and private authority, conflicts about property rights, and conflicts among ethno-linguistic subcultures. But by the end of the 17th century, after all the strenuous decades to normalize their abnormal lives, the Atlantic seaboard was a globalized world. What one scholar calls the first hemispheric community in human history. In all of that, a hundred years before the founding of the United States. Bernard Balin, The Barbarous Years. For movies this week, I review a documentary film called Indie Game, the movie, 2012. This documentary film follows four independent video game designers as they develop and release their work. These independent developers stand in stark contrast to the big-budget games produced by corporate monsters using teams with hundreds of people. Jonathan Blow of San Francisco talks us through his three years of work on a game called Braid, one of the top-rated games of all times. Phil Fish of Canada is the creator of Fez, which suffered numerous delays until its release in 2012. Ed McMillan of Santa Cruz and his partner Tommy Refines of North Carolina designed a game called Super Meat Boy which has sold over a million copies. The film does a good job of showing the social and emotional isolation these techno-recluses endure. Fish fears legal action from a former partner. Despite their independence, they all must interface with the big corporations. They struggle with the emotions of success, failure, and gamer responses. Anyone who has ever teed up a video game will appreciate it in a new way after seeing what it takes to actually make one. Indie Game, the movie. <coughs> and for the beginning of Lent with Ash Wednesday, we've posted a poem by the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. It's called Marked by Ashes. Ruler of the night, guarantor of the day, this day a gift from you. This day, like none other you have ever given or we have ever received. This Wednesday dazzles us with gift and newness and possibility. This Wednesday burdens us with the tasks of the day, for we are already halfway home, halfway back to committees and memos, halfway back to calls and appointments, halfway on to next Sunday, 
halfway back, half frazzled, half expectant, half turned toward you, half rather not. This Wednesday is a long way from Ash Wednesday, but all our Wednesdays are marked by ashes. We begin this day with that taste of ash in our mouth, of failed hope and broken promises, of forgotten children and frightened women. We ourselves are ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We can taste our mortality as we roll the ash around on our tongues. We are able to ponder our ashness with some confidence, only because our every Wednesday of ashes anticipates your Easter victory over that dry, flaky taste of death. On this Wednesday, we submit our ashen way to you. You Easter parade of newness. Before the sun sets, take our Wednesday and Easter us. Easter us to joy and energy and courage and freedom. Easter us that we may be fearless for your truth. Come here and Easter our Wednesday with mercy and justice and peace and generosity. We pray as we wait for the risen one who comes. Marked by Ashes by Walter Brueggemann. And thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 17th, 2013, the first Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.